Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Revolution 250 podcast. I'm Bob Allison. I chair the Rev 250 Advisory Group. We're a consortium of about 70 groups in Massachusetts looking at ways to commemorate the beginnings of American independence. And our guest today is Alan Folds. And Alan Folds is a historian from Reading, Massachusetts. Alan, welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much. This is exciting. Great. And in addition to being for 27 years the moderator of the Reading Town Meeting, you also have written about Boston ballparks and arenas, Linfield two centuries. You've written about uh, the Masons in the Revolution and other things. You also have a podcast. It's also history tales and tidbits from Alan's archives. And now you're producing a series called Lynn End in the Revolution. Right, right. That's um, they're going to be two to five minute uh, programs that are going to start running. Well, we we'll put, we've got the uh, introduction up now, but we're going to start running them in earnest this coming April of twenty four, and we'll right. keep going all the way through to April twenty five, telling what was going on in Lynn End as the revolution was fomenting. Great. So, how often will they run? Uh, roughly, how many episodes will there be? Yeah, there'll, there'll be 25 altogether. So it'll run one. roughly every two weeks. That's perfect. And now I think we're going to see one. We're going to see the intro. Right. Great. Right, so, so let's roll the intro of Lynn and Linfield, or Lynn and as it was called, was involved in the American Revolution from day one, April 19th. 1775. Together with every Middlesex village and farm, as well as those here in Essex and Suffolk and Norfolk, our local militia members grabbed their muskets and headed off to fight the world's most powerful army. In fact, by looking at town meeting records and diving into stories passed down to us, it's clear we were part of the movement long before that. Linfield was a part of Lynn in those days, set off as the second precinct or parish, but residents here were heavily involved in all the decisions. The Lynn Town Meeting, led by South Linfield's Daniel Mansfield, made it clear we supported Boston in its protests. The women of the town, in response to the Tea Act, stormed a bakery and shop and dumped the owner's tea supply out into the street. Lynn Inn, under the leadership of Nathaniel Bancroft, formed its own militia company and took part in some of the heaviest fighting. We had our own midnight rider, Martin Herrick, who met Paul Revere and gave the alarm in another direction. There was the dramatic return of the body of the fallen Daniel Townsend, an evening vigil that followed. On a regular basis leading up to the 250th observance, the Linfield Historical Society will take a look at many of the events and characters that led to that fateful April morning, the actions of the Lynn End Militia and all of Eastern Massachusetts put us on the road to the creation of a new nation. Thank you. That's very dramatic. It gives us a good introduction to what's happening in Linfield. So, Reading was then part of Linfield? 
No, um, the reason that I'm involved with both is I grew up in Linfield and I've lived in Reading for the past 43 years. So I am involved in both the Linfield Historical Society, where my father was president for several years. My mother was uh, heavily involved and I've been involved in Reading since I moved here back in 1980. <laughs> okay. 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 That makes sense. I mean, we do all move around. And, okay. I, I, I will so, point so out that I will point out, and as did people yeah. then. I will point out there is a connection. Martin Herrick, the Midnight Rider, came to both Reading and Linfield. So it, it kind of works well. <laughs> yes. Okay. It does. So what can you tell us about Martin Herrick? Well, that's really how I got involved in this. I was a, a history nerd, even as a little kid. And uh, I was fascinated by this marker that was in the old burying ground in Linfield. There was It's a, a tall obelisk-like thing that lists all of the, the founders of the Second Parish Church and the, and the members of the militia who went to the battle on April 19th. But at the very bottom, there's a note that says, Martin Herrick met Paul Revere and gave the alarm in another direction. So as a kid, I always thought, well, I know about Paul Revere and Dawes and Prescott. Who's this fourth guy? And why doesn't anybody know about him? So I dug into him and found that he was a, a local doctor. He actually had lived in North Reading before that but moved to Linfield when he became a doctor and he was in town for 40, 50 years, married Sally Wright of Middleton and raised two daughters and is the last person buried in the burial ground. But beyond that, I didn't know a whole lot about him except that there were references to him riding into town up to Gowing's Tavern and, and telling of the British advance. But then I got interested thinking, well, if Linfield and Reading and Stoneham were notified by this guy, there must've been others. So I started this, 50 plus year uh, digging into the other riders and have found riders all over Eastern Massachusetts, which makes sense. So many of these towns yeah. and villages made it to the battle. Yeah. Did uh, Revere and Herrick know each other before this? Not that I know of, but um, uh, Revere on his ride did stop at the militia captain's house in Medford, who's Captain Isaac Hall. He lived right next door to a doctor named Simon Tufts. Tufts, before you ask, I think was the grandfather of the founder of Tufts University. But he was a teaching doctor as well as being a doctor. He had several right, yeah. um, uh, apprentices, I guess you'd call them. That wasn't the term they used. And I think the three of them went off and became riders in different directions. Uh, Revere did know a guy named John Brooks, who was originally from Medford. He was part of the Brooks family, although he later moved to Reading become, to become the local doctor. And the Minuteman captain, as at 22 years old, he was elected Minuteman captain. He knew Revere, and he knew Herrick because they were uh, schoolmates, effectively. So okay. when Herrick got the word from Revere, he rode up to John Brooks in Reading and then on to Linfield mm -hmm. from there. Okay. And so what have you found out? Who was Martin Herrick? Have you found out more about who he was? Um, like I said, he was mostly, after, well, he, after the battle, he joined the Navy, became a naval surgeon in the Continental Navy, oh. was actually oh. uh, captured twice. He was a POW twice, but eventually came home and moved to Linfield, where he became the first local doctor. He had a great reputation. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, uh, I found a quote from one of the uh, his former patients saying that, now that he's gone, I don't expect I'll ever live through another disease. <laughs> but he lived a pretty quiet life after his, oh. his role in the beginning. 
That's interesting. So, um, how about how old was he when all of this was happening in 1775? How old was he? He was 28. Yeah, yeah. So he was okay. a little older. Now, surprisingly, John Brooks had graduated, mm -hmm. so to speak, at the age of 20. He moved to Reading and became the local doctor at age 20. In fact, he didn't even own a house when he came here. He rented a room in the Samuel Damon house, uh, although he did uh, he did stay long enough to meet and marry the uh, the Damon's niece. <laughs> but uh, in, in at age 22, he was elected captain of the uh, Minute Company. Part of the reason that Brooks was elected was that he not only was a, a good doctor, but he had studied under Timothy Pickering, Colonel Pickering in Salem. So he was a, an expert at war tactics. So right, he was the one right. chosen. And, and this is the Pickering who goes on to become Secretary of State in Washington. The very one, yes. <laughs> and there's the Pickering House in Salem. Which is where right, right. So, so you're surrounded by this history that, uh, and now you're really doing a great job of showcasing it, getting more people interested in it or knowing about what happened, aside from just Paul Revere met Martin Harris. Right, right. So, in fact, as part of Rev. 250, I'm involved with both the Linfield Historical Society and the Reading Antiquarian Society, and we're hoping to, in some way, recreate Martin Herrick's ride. It may be a staged ride where he, he comes into each individual town, yeah. but we can trace him through Stoneham yeah. to Reading to Linfield. Wow. About how long of a ride was that? Uh, probably 12 to 15 miles. Maybe a little bit longer because we don't really know exactly the route he took. But yeah. um, it's pretty obvious he went straight out of Medford by the home of Samuel Sprague, who was captain in Stoneham, and then somehow went up right. through what is right. now the Middlesex Fells. Mm -hmm. okay. And so then the militia from these towns turned out and went down to answer the alarm. That's right. The Reading Group, now Reading was made up of what is today North Reading, Reading, and Wakefield. Those mm -hmm. troops headed toward Concord. They actually met the uh, the British Army at, at Merriam's Corner. The mm -hmm. Linfield group, uh, well, as well as the other pieces of Lynn, went the other direction and uh, met the British in Monotomy. In fact, three of the members of the Linfield Company were killed at the Jason Russell House. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, now, in your research, have you found that there was a, maybe they had a list of officers or that uh, Herrick knew who he was looking for? Or did he... Well, you know, of course, this was treason back then so they didn't write yes. a whole lot down <laughs> yeah they're not saying these are the yeah. key people this <laughs> yeah but it looks as though he went to uh sprague he may very well have gone through what is now wakefield but it's, it's not mm -hmm. absolutely clear on that but mm -hmm. he did go to reading and in fact when he got to the damon house in reading brooks was supposedly attending to a patient at the hartshorn house around the corner well hartshorn was a, a member of the wow. local committee of mm -hmm. safety and um also a member of the Minute Company. So it's more likely they were they are planning things. Brooks had been in Boston the day right. before and had uh, supposedly talked yeah. to uh, Dr. Joseph Warren. Right. So we'll put attending to a patient in quotes. Uh, yes, yes, right, yeah. So in my no, research, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go on. I was going to say, the research has taken me beyond just Herrick and Brooks. Um, I think there was a third rider who came out from mm -hmm. Medford as well, although this is conjecture. I'll say that right off mm -hmm. the bat. There was another uh, student there named John Sprague who was from Malden. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know that he went up to Malden, but somebody rode up the Medford Road into Malden with the word knocking on Kettle's Tavern before heading off to Saugus. Now, after the war, Sprague 
bought Kettle's Tavern. So it, and both his father and his brother were members of the militia company. So it's a good bet that it was him, but we don't really know for sure. Okay. okay. Now, speaking of taverns, you're also involved with the Friends of Parker's Tavern. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, the Parker Tavern is, it's owned by the Reading Antiquarian Society, and it is effectively the town museum. It's um, probably okay. the oldest house in town, although there's some question about pieces of other houses that might be older, but it's the oldest house in town that's um, uh, still pretty much the way it was back then in, in place. That actually has an interesting story a year after April 19th. Uh, when after the siege of Boston ended, after the, um, the evacuation took place, a mm -hmm. uh, three transport ships came into the harbor. hadn't heard about the evacuation yet. Yeah. It was led led by a guy named Archibald Campbell. Well, they were all captured right away, and Campbell himself was taken to the Parker Tavern and held there for a few months mm -hmm. before eventually being shipped off to the Concord Jail. Wow. Wow. So Campbell himself liked the tavern. I guess he was treated pretty well here. Um, he yeah. he was given, um, it was like a gentleman's agreement. He was he was held in the tavern, which meant he couldn't go more than a mile from the tavern. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they oh, used wow. to picnic. They used to picnic up on yeah. a place that's today called Scotland Hill. And um, in well, fact, these were, all uh, Scot these were all Scottish soldiers. Sure. Yes, all Scottish. That, right, right. So uh, he actually received two votes for selectmen, and that didn't please the town fathers too much. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he didn't decide to stay, though. No, no. But then he gets shipped to Concord, and he didn't like the Concord jail at all. It was more like a jail. In fact, he he made a plea to George Washington asking to be Yeah, more like a jail than a tavern, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Wow. But then he eventually was wow. uh, traded. He was um, rebound. So where did he go? It was a prisoner um, exchange for Ethan Allen, and uh, he eventually yeah. got back into the uh, mm -hmm. army and became the um, uh, military general of Georgia. And then later on, I believe he was wow. the general, I mean, not the, uh, but the governor, excuse me, military governor of uh, Georgia, and then later governor of Jamaica. And then he's buried in yeah, right. um, oh. Westminster Abbey now. <laughs> Wow. Well, from, from Parker Tavern to Westminster. Yeah, right. okay. uh, now, now you also mentioned that uh, Dr. Simon Tufts in Medford lived next door to Captain Isaac Hull. Is he related to the Isaac Hull of the USS Constitution, or is this a different Isaac Hull? Actually, you know, I, I think I was mixing that up. I was thinking of Hull when I said it. It's okay. actually Isaac Hall. <laughs> Hall, <laughs> okay. That, that makes much yeah. more I sense. I probably yeah, said I Hall Hull was from I Connecticut. Right, right. Yeah. Easy, now, easy to make. Now, Tuck, I think, yeah, go on, go on, Alan. I was going to say, again, no, Revere doesn't mention him by name. He just mentions he stopped at the militia captain's house, which happened to be Isaac Hall. But uh, even years Isaac later, Hall, when yeah. he was giving his deposition to the Massachusetts Historical Society, he was, Revere was still careful about not using people's names. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, he keeps that discretion. Uh, how, how do we know about him meeting Martin Herrick? I mean, where's that story documented? Well, it's that's partly legend, but it's probably something to it. Like I said, it's on the marker that mm -hmm. he met Paul Revere. And history mm -hmm. books written in the 1890s, which are, of course, now about third hand, but they're the author, uh, Thomas Wellman, had, had spoken to the children of people who were there and talked about Martin Herrick breathlessly riding up to the Gowing Tavern 
and uh, giving the word before heading back to home, which was North Reading at the time. So it's a little mm -hmm. bit of um, hearsay, but if they did get the word somehow, and it seems to make sense that it was him. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Um, now, you've also done a bit of work with uh, looking at the history of the Masons in this period. Can you tell us a little bit about any how the Masons might have been involved? Well, um, there's there's all again it's, it's somewhat uh, legend, but there's all kinds of rumors that there was a lot of talk among the Masons that were planning the uh, the revolution. Paul Revere, of course, uh, John Hancock was, although mm -hmm. more like an in name only. He really wasn't as involved as Revere was. But Revere, through the Masons, had all sorts of connections with just about everybody in town, at least all the movers and shakers. And um, yeah, so that's that's. There's something to that, whether it was a, an organized thing or not. Yeah. Is there a Masonic group in Reading and Infield? There is. There's I'm, a Masonic I'm not asking group. you to betray any secrets. <laughs> yes, there is a Masonic hall in Reading. There's, there's a Linfield Lodge, although they meet over in Wakefield, but there is a Linfield Lodge as well. Yeah. And about how big were these towns in 1775? They were pretty small. I mean, especially like Linfield it wasn't even a separate town yet. It was still it was the second precinct or parish of Lynn. And there were 38 people in the militia compared to like Saugus, which was the third parish that had, I think, 65. Although it's funny, Linfield yeah. lost three of its members. It really got hit the hardest of the Lynn groups. Really? But uh, Reading was a little bit bigger, although back then it had three precincts. It had North Reading and Wakefield, as well as what is today Reading. So that was a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. Linfield was really a tiny spot. Mm -hmm. Were they mainly farming towns? Yes, yeah. Well, Linfield anyway was mainly a farming town. It was really just sort of an extension of Lynn. Although it was so far from downtown Lynn, they kind of felt that they were separate. And by 1782, they were officially right. separated. But they built their own meeting house yes, back in so 1784. Wow. So it, it starts with becoming a separate parish, and then that developed. Right. They might develop yeah, into seven, a separate town. 1712, it became a separate parish. They built their own meeting house in 1714, and then had the first minister in 1720. So it was like a, a, a gradual process. But in 1775, it had its own uh, militia company, and uh, they, yeah. they really they were just nominally part of Lynn, but they did officially separate seven years yeah. after the revolution started. Interesting. Uh, I believe the Mass Historical Society is going to have an exhibit on St. Andrew's Lodge and the Boston Tea Party. I think it's opening on the 5th of October. So that's something we want to know more about the role of the Masons in this. Uh, that would be a good St. place Andrew's, to start. Yeah, St. Andrew's Lodge is one of the two oldest in the country, I believe. Definitely the oldest here, yeah. but I think, think they're the two yeah. oldest in the country. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. So you have uh, now. Do you have any letters or other things where are the town meeting or are they talking about these issues in 1775? Well, yeah. that, that part of the story is near and dear to my heart, being a moderator for yes, a, a long time. Um, yes, there were there were a lot of mentions of the issues in the in the town meeting. It was Lynn's town meeting at the time in Linfield anyway. And uh, but the the regular moderator was a guy from Linfield. And there were constant uh, mentions of the, uh, the impending problems. In fact, on December 16th, 1773, the day of the Tea Party, 
there was a resolution passed in Lynn supporting whatever Boston decides to do with the, um, wow. with the boycott of imported tea. And wow. two or three days later, they found out what had happened. The women of the mm-hmm. town stormed into a local bakery and shop, tea shop, and demanded that he get rid of all of his imported tea. And when he wouldn't, these women grabbed the tea and dumped it out in the street out front. <laughs> wow. So they had their own little tea party. That was like limbs. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Now, are you going to be commemorating that? This, this oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll, uh, yeah. we'll have something. It won't be a big part of it, but we will definitely uh, do something for that. Maybe we'll dump tea out into some street. Starbucks. Or, <laughs> yeah, right. That, that would be good. That would be good. Yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, and, and, and so the town, so Linfield is still part of Lynn. It's a Lynn town meeting, and they're the ones making the resolution about Right. It was still, they were going to the Lynn town meeting, yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, they, had their own, um, they had their own meetings and they had their own parish meetings, but the town meeting was in what was called the old tunnel meeting right. house on Lynn Common. Does it still stand? No. The Linfield one does, but not the Lynn one. The Lynn one's long gone. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's me. So this action, you know, a lot of times the history presents this as being very Boston centric, but what we're seeing is there's actually all of this. Um, action going on in Linfield, Lynn, Reading, Malden, Medford, these other towns north of yes. Boston. Yes. They, in fact, there were, there were other riders from there. I, I, when I was doing my research, I kind of lumped them into what I call hubs. They didn't call them that, but um, there were riders went out from places like okay. uh, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln, which was very close to the action on that day. It had its own uh, set of uh, riders. Let's see if I can come up with some right. of the names. Yeah. Josiah Nelson was actually assigned in Lincoln to head to Bedford with any any news, and he was he must have known something was coming. He was awake in the middle of the night, waiting, and then he heard uh, uh, the horses coming up the street. It was of course pitch dark. There's no mm-hmm. street lights or anything back yeah. then. He looked out the window and he yelled to the riders, saying, "Have you seen any of the British troops coming?" Well, it was two members of the British troop on horseback. One of them came up to him and facetiously, facetiously said, I'll let you know if I see any. Took his sword out and slashed poor Nelson across the forehead. But undaunted, Josiah oh Nelson dressed his wound, headed off to uh, Lincoln with the word. And then um, wow. Wow. Samuel Prescott, who, of course, more or less finished yeah. Revere's ride, he stopped at Ephraim Hartwell's tavern just to... And then Hartwell sent word over to his son, who was a sergeant in the militia. And then Hartwell's wife, Mary Hartwell, hopped on her horse and rode over to Captain Smith. So a lot of things went out from Lincoln. And then, of course, Concord was another big hub. Uh, Benjamin Tidd and Nathan Monroe were jointly assigned also to go to Lincoln. So Lincoln was very well warned. But they not only went to Lincoln, they stopped at every house along the way. They actually gave a report later as to where they went. And then uh, a guy named Reuben Brown was sent down to Hopkinton. William Parkman went to Sudbury to Captain Thomas Plimpton. And then Samuel Prescott's brother, Abel Prescott, was sent to Hopkinton. And somebody went from, from Concord to Acton and Stowe, but the name isn't recorded. But Hamilton Hurd in his History of Middlesex mm-hmm. County says that it was Samuel Prescott himself, who continued on. And in fact, there is a marker, uh, Stowe, 
uh, marking the end of uh, Prescott's ride. Hmm. And then, so um, the provincial congress might have set up some kind of a network of um, these guys. So, it, or, or it, so it's not just random. You find someone who happens to be awake with a horse. Exactly. It's not just random. It's it's a little. It's loosely organized, but it was organized. Um, not yeah. only the uh, provincial congress, but there were even Middlesex County had set up an alarm system even before that. They in Cambridge there was an early resolve that says, um, let's if I get the words right here exactly, there be appointed a select number of persons in each town of Middlesex who, upon hearing any information concerning danger in any other town, must spread the word and go help. Hmm. The towns of the dispatch post each town to the next until notices be conveyed over the whole county if need be. And then in October of in October 74, the Provincial Congress did weigh in. It was after the, the so-called powder alarm where the, the troops had gone out mm -hmm. to Powder House Square. The colonists were more or less caught unawares and they thought this isn't going to happen again. So they set up mm -hmm. this alarm system. It wasn't exactly a system, but each town was told you have to appoint somebody to go here or there. Unfortunately, a lot of these names are lost. Some of them aren't. Some of them yeah. have been recorded or, or at least carried down through stories and legends, but some of them right. just know there was a writer. Wow. And this is, it's, it's interesting to see this, um, not knowing what is going to happen, but planning to have this kind of way of connecting with different communities. Right, right. It's, um, you know, everybody knows about Paul Revere. Every school child knows of Paul right. Revere yeah. and, and yeah. history buffs like you would be sure. and probably everybody watching knows about Dawes yeah. and Prescott. But these sure. other careers are more or less forgotten. They are, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Revere, of course, he wrote, um, Jeremy Belknap asked him to write down what happened and so he does do that. But also he has a deposition shortly after. And also we have in the Massachusetts archives the receipts he presented. So I'm wondering That's true. If, these, That's true. if these writers also somehow presented a receipt to the Committee of Safety or someone. And Revere, of course, had the greatest uh, publicity agent in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like eight, 80 years later. The 80 Longfellow years later, right. Poem. But there are these other stories of these other folks that are um, yeah, definitely worth thinking about. This whole network, it's a lot of, a lot of people involved in it. As I said, what's interesting is they're forgotten on the big picture, but locally, a lot of them are not forgotten. That's right. There's yeah. an interesting story in the town of Westford. The Westford history, written back in the 18, late 1800s yeah. sometime, goes, it's almost uh, poetic language, the way he talks about this mysterious mounted messenger. The, his silhouette was seen on Beaverbrook Bridge mm -hmm. riding to Colonel Prescott. His, his words... His name is lost to history, but his words live on. But then ah. over, in Little, but over in Littleton, four miles away, mm -hmm. they, they talk about Edward Weatherby riding over the Beaverbrook Bridge over to Westford. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, his name isn't lost to history in the next town. <laughs> right, right. And also, uh, you know, there had been a system of communication set up with post riders, traveling you know, traders, messengers, and so on. In fact, some of them advertised in the newspaper. So, but you're wondering how these guys were recruited to be, or women in some cases, to be the ones who will carry these particular message on April 18th and 19th. I know. First of all, you had to have a horse, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do notice there's a pattern, that an awful lot of them are doctors. Now, I don't That's know true. why yeah. that is. It could be that well, doctors would have traveled a lot to see their patients. 
right? They had an excuse to be out in the middle of the night. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Joseph Warren may have built up a, uh, right. a network himself. That's right. That's interesting. Yeah. Think about this as the doctors involved in this more yeah. than just being doctors, but as being messengers. Right. We yeah. know Samuel I, Prescott, Herrick, and Brooks, and of course, Warren himself. And I think there were a couple Simon more. Tufts and, Simon and, Tufts. Simon Tufts, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And Tufts also had a connection, I know, with the Adams family down in um, Quincy. He so, did, yes. I, I don't know what that is, but I have heard that too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know there's a frequent correspondence of John and Abigail. But it's interesting to think about the way that you, I think maybe we give too much credit to the lawyers or the merchants. And I think thinking about the role of the doctors in this is um, an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. So um, now you've also been doing this great history podcast, these short takes on different things that come out of your research. It's also history tales and tidbits from Alan's archive. So how did you decide to do that? Well, like I said, I've always been kind of a history nut, right from, from my, my earliest memories, and especially local history. I like to yeah. be able to go see the places, things actually happen, and kind of imagine what it was like 100 yeah. years ago, 200 years ago. So I've just sort of collected a lot of these smaller stories. I wouldn't say smaller, but stories you don't see in the history books. You don't get taught yeah. in history class. And I thought I could put together 10 to 15 minute stories on these. Maybe there isn't enough for a book or yeah. an article even, but something that people would be interested in. Some of the examples, yeah. um, recently I did one on the, the Boston Post cane, which was, of course, a cane yes. given to the oldest resident in town. I did a story on the Pickwick Club disaster, a building that, mm. that uh, collapsed yeah. in 1925 and, and killed Killed about half of the people who were in there at the time. It was actually the jitterbug. People were doing the jitterbug. Yeah, it was brought down by a song. The, the, yes, brought down by a song. Right, right. Yeah. And so stories like that, they're not necessarily revolution stories. They're just things yeah. that have happened in New England that, uh, like I said, I think people are interested in. They are. Well, they're, they're fascinating stories because there's histories, and it's not just the revolution. All kinds of other things have happened in these right. various communities. Now, you, uh, your first one dealt with you know, the famous 19th of April with Adams and Hancock, but also there's a cow involved. You want to tell us about that part <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, Adams and Hancock were, of course, out in the uh, Hancock-Clark house when word mm -hmm. came to them, and they were convinced they needed to get out of there because they would be prime targets of the troops. So uh, it was actually Paul Revere that helped them get the their chest out of the building, yeah. which contained yeah. a lot of the provincial uh, council, uh, provincial Congress records. So uh, they went out into the woods at first while a battle was going on. But uh, Hancock didn't want to be walking through the woods. He waited until his chest, as his uh, his wagon showed yeah. up. Yeah. They eventually they got to a house in. Woburn, which was now part of Burlington. In fact, the house probably would be out in the middle of the Burlington Mall parking lot right now if it still existed. Wow. And they had breakfast there before they moved on to Bill Ricca. And there was a woman, um, let's see if I get the story right here. There was a, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact story now, sorry, but there sorry, was a, sorry, there was, there was a and now I've, I've forgotten that. It was sort of an interesting little story. The, the I want to give a link to the podcast so people can remember, yes. find out what happened. At the, the, cow, I, I the cow actually got kind of famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
they, there are few enough famous cows that I think we yeah. want to um, right, right. or we can find one. Um, so uh, we've been talking with Alan Folds, who is an historian from Reading, also an historian of Linfield, and um, doing all kinds of work on these other rides. Anything else we should talk about, Alan? I think we could go on all day telling stories about what's happening in these towns. Oh, I know. Each each town, of course, has its own little story, and uh, yeah. It was one, just a, a quick one. I know in um, in Dedham, when a rider rode through, we don't know who the rider is, but he went through what is now Dedham and Needham and Norwood, which I think were all part of Dedham at the time. Um, I don't know where the story comes from, but at the centennial in 1875, there was a speech given, and um, he said that the local minister wanted them to stop and pray before they left. And uh, he said, no, we have more urgent business at hand and he left with his men but even before that he um admonished someone some some croaker who said the alarm was false <laughs> so they shut ah. him up yeah i know in uh, david hackett fisher's book he has some areas that are blanked out the, the alarm, it shows how the alarm spread and there are some areas where it didn't reach because maybe people did think it was a false alarm or fake it could it could be yeah i i actually ran into a similar problem there were it seems like a lot of places were were alarmed once, twice, three times even, and other mm -hmm. places just seem to get missed. It could be mm -hmm. that the history is just lost, or maybe mm -hmm. it just wasn't that good a system. I mean, it was sort of an impromptu thing that, that happened. Yeah. And maybe they just did get missed, or maybe they got it got to them too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jonathan reminds us that nothing happened in Waltham. That nobody turned out from Waltham. <laughs> Do you, know, do you know anything more about why why Waltham or that lost the history? And uh, I, I don't know. I have never found anything about yeah, Waltham. Yeah. Probably just like yeah, John. Like no, no one from town. Boy, we thought it was a false alarm. Yeah, it, it could be. I'm sure. I'm sure there were people who thought it was a false alarm. There probably were alarms before that. And like yeah. back in the um, Leslie's retreat, it wasn't false, mm -hmm. obviously. But I know yeah. the Reading group had gotten alarmed. I don't know who did it. Maybe it was Martin Eric, but they headed off to the battle or what they thought was going to be a battle. But somewhere in what is now Peabody, they met troops coming back saying, it's all over. Nothing happened. The British retreated. And then Redding in turn met the Linfield crowd that was heading out and told them, turn around, it's over. So there were some of these false starts that might have made people think, oh, I'm busy yeah. with my forty. <laughs> it's just like we just we were been we just went through a big hurricane warning and you know it missed us so uh, uh, right 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 so make, makes you complacent the next time that's interesting but it's fascinating to think about this not in terms of the stories we know but about how all this came to be in the stories we don't know that you're helping to share so, uh, right it's those side stories that have always fascinated me yeah, but, yeah. you know when you think about it Obviously, there had to be several riders. I mean, everybody knows about Paul Revere, mm -hmm. but obviously, if you just think about it for a minute, there was more than one person or three people riding around. So there had to have been some sort of a network. And it's yeah. never really been fully explored. Yeah. And they're not, they're, they have to go in different directions because they're warning different towns. But then sometimes, as you said, there is an overlap. Some towns get warned a couple of times. You know, right. Yes. In fact, even in Reading, there's talk about a rider coming through later on after the troops had already gone. Mm -hmm. And a guy named Pre Caleb Prentice, who was the uh, minister of the South Parish, he 
went with some of the older men who were exempt from the service and decided, well, mm -hmm. let's go. But that yeah. was the second ride that came in. We don't know where that came from. It may have just been from the next door town. Wow. Interesting. Well, I want to thank you, Alan, for spending some time sharing this with us. And we'll probably have to have you back to tell us more stories about what's happening in these towns. Anything else we should add before we let you go? No, like I said, the, the last thing is just sort of an epilogue. It is amazing that most of these poor guys have just been, you know, they went back to their regular lives and have just sort of disappeared into the woodwork. It's, just, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, Martin Herrick, locally, most, I bet most people in town don't know him. Of the, of the few yeah. historians that do, he's kind of a local hero. But for the most part, he's yeah. just forgotten. And that's, that's the way it is all over eastern Massachusetts. But then again, he lives the rest of his life as the town doctor, which is not a small thing. That's right, right. And it is, as Emerson said, they died to let, leave their children free. So, you know, you don't need right. to constantly be doing yep. things like that. So, yeah. But, well, thank you so much, Alan, for joining us to share this. And I want to thank Jonathan Lane, our producer, who's been feeding me questions and has been arranging these. Uh, and thank you for the work you're doing, Alan, in keeping this history alive. I want to thank our friends in different places who are tuning in and our listeners. And, uh, you know, we thought we'd have people in this small network of towns, but we have folks all over the world. So this week, our friends in Madrid and in Dracut, which is um, near us, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Bangkok, Thailand, Belmont, um, Bountiful, Utah, or Bardello in Italy, and Lincolnwood, Illinois, in one of these places. And you have a question or you want to connect with us, send Jonathan Lane an email, jlane at revolution250.org. He'll send you one of our Revolution 250 refrigerator magnets or one of our other tchotchkes. And I look forward to having you all back with us again and maybe Alan Bolt again at some point. And now we will all be piped out on the road.